0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Barischetti on ABC Radio WA.
2: Good afternoon. Hope your Friday's going well and very pleased you are here for the Country Hour. Today, some of the pressure taken off the rock lobster industry. As you know, the Chinese market, the the key, the premium market for the industry is still closed and that means the prices, the returns are down for the fishermen. So the idea is to extend the season a little longer and there's also an option to pay fees in instalments just to help that cash flow for those in the industry. You'll get the details of that shortly. And then after half past 12, after the news headlines and across to the Bureau of Meteorology, how to make shearing sheds safer. And as part of that discussion, an update on the industrial manslaughter laws here in Western Australia. Um, They've gone through the parliament and they are set those reforms are set to be implemented by January 2022. What do they mean for you? What should you be doing at your place to make sure you're ready for those reforms to be implemented? All that as part of a discussion after half past 12 here on the Country Hour. First up, though, at six past 12, Western Australian pastoralists are celebrating a win after convincing the Valuer-General to reduce proposed increases to pastoral lease rents. Now, to give you an idea of the sort of increases that were on the table, back in 2019, the state government announced stations in the Kimberley would face rent increases of up to 325%. That has now been adjusted to an increase of 104%. There was a total of 103 objections to the rent hikes and after a lengthy investigation and re-evaluation by Landgate, all of them, the 103, have been upheld and adjusted accordingly. Kimberley Pilbara Cattlemen's Association Chair David Stote is pleased the Valuer-General saw the industry side of the argument.
3: The uh, increases that that, they'd foisted upon the industry prior to this uh, correction were absolutely ridiculous so it's it's certainly very pleasing that you know the industry's been listening to the KBCAs worked very hard on this issue over the past few years so it's a great outcome that we've got so far but it, it's still you know for Kimberley pastoralists represents a, a doubling in lease rents so it's still a significant increase and that's flowed under shire rates which were already too high before this started so there's still some way to go,
4: I think. Can you tell me what the pastros were sort of the numbers they were faced with back in two thousand nineteen, and what this announcement today actually means?
3: Yeah, so it, like in the Kimberley, where the biggest increases happened, they were uh, they're looking at increases of well over three hundred percent. You know, which happens overnight, and then that flowed through to, to Shire rates as well. You know, where increases were of a similar magnitude. So, you know, it was a massive increase and it's not like we get anything for that. Um, you know, it's increased overnight and there's no additional service or anything like that. So no other business anywhere would face an increase of that magnitude. So it, it's something that we had to address. We're pleased that, that the value of general has gone this far. We might have hoped it had gone a little bit further, but it's certainly a great result
4: so far. You're a pastoral lease owner in the Kimberley, if these objections didn't stand and it carried on for five years, how much money would have you been up for, do you reckon?
3: Well, it's, it was over it. Uh, we were facing um, our lease rents of over, you're talking, uh, you know, over the five years, it's probably, you know, $500,000 or, you know, something of that magnitude. So we've still seen a doubling of the rates in the Kimberley, which is, overnight is is quite unfair, but it's still a, a lot fairer than a you know a three hundred percent increase.
4: Could you also just explain to me they've dropped the rate of return from two point eight to one point eight? What does that actually mean? What is the rate of return
3: so lease rents are determined by an unimproved value multiplied by that rate of return so that's how you get to the lease rent. So, I mean, that's 1.8% in, you know, to give you a comparison in the Northern Territory, I think that's at about 0.4%, you know, and in the Territory they have better land tenure. So it's still, here in Western Australia, we're still paying significantly more for pastoral lease rents than they are in the Northern Territory.
4: I think it speaks volumes when you get such a big group to actually take action. Like, does this feel good? To everyone lodging those objections and they're seeing an outcome. Yeah, look, it,
3: it is it is good when the industry works together. Uh, you know, the pastoral industry in the in the north has been. Uh, notorious for not working together that well. So, um, yeah, it does illustrate what can happen when everyone does work together. So hopefully we can see more of that in the future as well.
2: David Stote, he's the chair of the Kimberley Pilbara Cattlemen's Association and speaking there to James Liveris. 11 past 12, and if you're a pastoralist and you've just heard that conversation and you're thinking to yourself, gee, I wish I'd put in an objection to the rent increases at your place, well, do not worry. You can still do that. The Valuer General has extended the objection process until the 30th of June. So a little bit more time there. Just looking at the pastoral lease rent adjustments made by the Valuer General. So back in 2019, the government had planned to increase the rates. As you heard earlier in the Kimberley, it was you know, up to 325% increases in those pastoral lease rents. That's now been adjusted to 104. In the Pilbara, the proposal was 91% increase. That's now 10%. The Gascoigne Goldfields, it was going to be 58. It's now been adjusted to negative 7%, so down 7%. And then in the Southern Rangelands, the idea was 8%. That's now been adjusted to negative 3%. So you've got until the 30th of June if you are keen.
5: 12 past 12. Uh, My name's Ross Ariti.
6: I'm at Kelly Station. I make sure that I listen to the Country Hour every day and listen to Belinda Baraschetti.
2: On ABC Radio WA. That is so good to hear, Ross. I'm glad you're there. (laughs) 12 past 12 here on the Country Hour, not far away from news headlines and then off to the Bureau of Meteorology. See what's happening at your place this afternoon and into the weekend. First, though... Western rock lobster fishers have again been granted an extended season of 18 months to catch their quota of lobster. Now, you know the Chinese market is still closed. Um, Some of the lobster are going to alternative Asian markets, places like Taiwan, for example, and there's the domestic back-of-boat sales. They're still continuing, but prices are still pretty low with A, B and C grades at $30 a kilogram. The total allowable catch over this extended season is going to remain steady at 9,000 tonnes. Minister for Fisheries Don Punch says along with the extension to the season, the fishers will also have the option to pay access fees in instalments.
7: It enables the uh, the fishers to make the most of the seasonality and pick up on the peak times and match them to market peak times. Uh, and we're also um, arranging for, in essence, a, a more flexible instalment plan on access fees. So it extends the season to take the best advantage of market conditions, uh, but it also provides for a, a more flexible arrangement for paying the access fees it really assists with cash flow for the industry.
8: Is this something that the industry has asked for?
7: Yeah, it's come out of consultation with the industry. Uh, they came to us looking for this assistance measure, so it's been negotiated over the past few months and um, we're now putting in a position to put it in place.
8: The price of lobster is still very low. Are there any green shoots? Is there any good news on the horizon?
7: Look, I know that the industry itself is looking at a whole range of um, market initiatives to try and improve the market. There's still an overseas market that's been exploited and certainly the back of boat lobster sales have helped in terms of clearing product and assisting with cash flows. But I think it's something that we're just going to have to see how it evolves over the next few months in terms of the market opportunities with the extended season.
8: The ongoing closure of the Chinese market is is really hurting many fishers financially. I, you mentioned the announcements today also include, I guess, some instalments and and a way to spread the cost of access fees out over the eighteen months. Is the state government considering reducing access fees?
7: No, we've um, we've received some correspondence from the council. In relation to access fees which we're looking at at the moment but at this point the the position that has been negotiated with the council is the extension of the season with a quota at 9,000 tons and an installment plan for payment of the excess fees and this does come on the back of a previous assistance package that was related to COVID-19 which included a range of uh, other measures as well. It's really unfortunate that we've got the situation with China at the moment and Hopefully, at some point, um, the federal government will be able to um, build a better relationship with China that might open up those markets again. But at the moment, we have to live with what we have.
8: And the fees stay where they are?
7: Uh, they, well, I haven't I've waiting advice from the department. We haven't made any decision in relation to fees. We've got that request from the council and we'll be making announcements in respect of that request in due course. <laughs>
8: It doesn't seem like there's end in sight for the Chinese closure. Other commodities are, are now being affected, or continue to be affected. Are you concerned about boats leaving the rock lobster industry?
7: I don't want to see the, uh, the industry reduce at all, and the quota is there. I think the industry itself is really acting very quickly to try and find new markets and establish, more importantly, high-value markets so that the unit price is a better price, and, and that's one of the big issues at the moment. So quota is being sold, but it's about the price levels that it's being sold at, and we want to see that at a reasonable price that's sustainable for the industry and provides a good margin.
2: Minister for Fisheries, Don Punch, with Lucinda Jose. 17 past 12. Well, even when international flights and travel resumes, Australian exporters may see air freight cost double from pre-pandemic prices. Now, at the moment, the government is propping up exports with the International Air Freight Subsidy Scheme, but that is not going to last forever. Researchers and exporters in Queensland are taking a look at how to improve sea freight conditions for highly perishable vegetable exports to Asian markets as an alternative to what they always used to do, and send it by air freight with the details here's John Daly
0: Sea freight has been pretty unrealistic for perishable vegetable exports in the past for years they've hitched a ride to export markets in the belly of passenger flights that go across the globe and it was quick and relatively cheap but predicted prices of air freight even after international travel resumes around the world means sea freight may soon be the only economically viable option
9: In the future, we're probably looking at paying probably twice the price of what we have in the past. And at the moment, it's anywhere between three to six or even 10 times as much as what they were pre-COVID. And on speaking with some of the freight forwarding businesses that we're working with at the moment, we'll never get back to that that level. So it's kind of been a shakeout for the freighting industry, so to speak, or the air freight industry. And it is we will never get back to those cheap prices uh, again. So we are going to have to continue to look at, at sea freight options in the future.
0: That's Queensland's Department of Agriculture and Fisheries' principal horticulturalist in supply chains, Jody Campbell, And she's been looking at how to give vegetable exports better sea legs.
9: So the project is really a a pilot project just to demonstrate the, the types of things that we really need to do to make sure that we can have efficient vegetable chains. We actually took some example vegetable products. So we're working with broccoli, green beans, sweet corn, And lettuce, we were working with commercial businesses who were exporting or wanting to export to look at how we could sea freight their products. But it's it's not only that, we really do have the opportunity to move much higher volumes of product if we sea freight as well. So it's not just the, the cost effectiveness, it's also shifting those, mm. those volumes once we grow those, those markets that we're targeting.
0: At facilities at Gatton and Nambour in Queensland, researchers are simulating sea freight conditions and trying different ways to delay the decay, Of veggies on long sea journeys.
9: We can do this with temperature and also looking at controlled atmosphere so that's where you actually control the atmosphere to slow down the respiration of the vegetables so that they can virtually be put to sleep for long sea freight journeys. So basically if you're going into Asia you're looking at probably a a 15-day sea journey that includes two days before it actually sails compared to you know an overnight flight so it's a lot more challenging so you've really got to look at other packaging options you've got to um, make sure you've got the right varieties that are actually going to have the shelf life or the legs for the journey and a number of other different treatments and looking at making it a lot more, I guess, consistent with the outturns that we haven't had in the past.
0: Osveg has played a part in this research and Export Development Manager Michael Coots says it's important work considering national fresh vegetable exports are worth more than $260 million a year.
10: The issue that we're starting to try and address here is if the air freight capacity, is it will not be the same as it was in pre-COVID times and there's a potential price increase um, per kilo that air freight exporters will be seeing there's an opportunity to look at, well, how can we move some of those perishable vegetable export crops from an air freight export pathway to a sea freight pathway and service some uh, markets across Asia that um, historically probably wouldn't have been considered viable. A broccoli shipment for, say, Taiwan and Japan, it's been identified that using modified atmosphere bags instead of top iced styrofoam containers can improve quality. And then you don't have ice impacting, uh, impacting the quality of the broccoli and and another outcome, for example, has been sweet corn being exported on the husk, which is preferred by Japanese customers using uh, controlled atmosphere containers can also retain a, a level of a fresh appearance and, um, and, and at a quality that's um, uh, accepted by the market.
0: The Federal International Freight Assistance Mechanism has kept air freight routes open for a lot of exporters, but it's going to run out of funding in September this year. And while this research into sea freight is encouraging, there's still more work to do.
11: We've still got a
9: long way to go. We've still got to build on getting that consistency in there. So... There's really a tonne of work that we can really do in the future and we plan to do in partnership with AusVeg to make sure that we can actually build these more robust sea freight chains and, and drive the efficiencies in the chain as well. So drive out the costs and make it more viable for our vegetable producers in Australia.
2: It's one thing that comes out of sort of challenging situations, isn't it? You start looking at how you can do things Differently, It's a really good project and one to keep tabs on and give you the update as it comes through. Queensland Department of Agriculture and Fisheries, Principal Horticulturalist in Supply Chains, Jodie Campbell, uh, wrapping up that report by John Daly. It is 23 past 12 and Bananas have long been Australia's best-selling fruit and one of the few that's produced 52 weeks of the year, so all year round. But how do you brand a banana when there's very little to differentiate a banana from Queensland compared to one from New South Wales or even here in Western Australia? Adam Ferrier is an advertising and brand development specialist and you might have seen him on ABC TV's Gruen. In the past, he has just addressed the Australian Banana Congress, which is underway in Cairns. And his message is bananas are not just bananas.
12: Every single category in the world is generic all cars are the same all water is the same all bananas are the same whatever you're making there's a thousand different people doing exactly the same thing as you branding is everything that wraps around that to create differentiation to make the consumers motivated to buy it and so what I try to talk about is try to find a central organizing thought for your brand and then try to bring that to life in a really distinctive and differentiated way.
11: Well, you go to an Australian supermarket, you're going to get a Cavendish banana or maybe a ladyfinger banana, but very little else for the customer, the consumer, to differentiate on.
12: Yeah, it's just not true. You know, all eggs are pretty much the same, and yet they've differentiated massively in that. Salt is a category that's where everyone's differentiated lots and found different stories and lots of value to be extracted from the salt category. You know, ice cream, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Water is the ultimate example. All water is the same, right, but you can pay 12 bucks for a litre of water, or you can 95 cents you can take it from the tap there are differences in bananas ladyfinger bananas are smaller some bananas have little wax seals at the bottom of them to show that they're organic some bananas come packaged in other types of packaging some bananas are left clean but your point is kind of also true that they haven't been branded well to date like they are still much a banana is a banana is a banana but i guess that's why i'm here to help people understand how to do that better
11: so it really does come down to how it's dressed
12: up it comes down to the story. Like Consumers want a story, whatever they consume, and that story needs to match something about themselves. So if they want a story around health or a story around vitality or a story around being cool, then you just need to understand what story that consumer wants to say and match your brand to that. It's not just packaging. It's not just the image. It's everything. It's the backstory you've got, your motivation for being in business, uh, how to communicate that to other people. I'm now starting to sound like a marketing uh, dick. I understand that.
11: No, Adam Ferrier, you're here at the Banana Congress 2021 in Cairns because you are considered to be a leading thinker in the advertising and marketing space and particularly in brand development. So if we think about the packaging, the fact that bananas don't have one, and up until this point, that's been considered one of its key market advantages, right? It's got its own environmentally sustainable package. And yet, when we go to the supermarket, we walk up and down the fresh produce aisles and we see wall-to-wall plastic. Why is that so? And and is this something that bananas will have to get on board with if they're going to continue to remain relevant in uh, in that category, that fresh food space?
12: It's a really interesting question. And I think they have their own container, which makes them really convenient for when you're out and about. You can grab one, it's not going to get dirty on the inside. But when you're selling to somebody at that point of sale, it might need some packaging to help communicate the proposition on what that banana is about versus all the other bananas and the other types of fruit and vegetables out there. So although consumers will say they don't want packaging on their bananas, you might need to find interesting ways on how to communicate it and that may involve some packaging. So again, the wax seals on some organic bananas is a good example of that. Some bananas just have a kind of a thin green thread around the bunch that talks about the manufacturer. So there are ways to do it without necessarily being environmentally bad, but you're going to have to find ways to communicate your brand beyond just the banana itself.
11: What about the point of sale, though? People are shopping online, perhaps they're going to the supermarket less frequently because they do want to kind of exercise a bit of social distancing in their weekly routine. Does that have implications for fresh food like bananas, which rely on the frequency of people just picking up a bunch and throwing it in the trolley?
12: That's an unreal question. You almost need digital packaging, don't you? Because um, I wonder what that looks like. Because on all, all, all other packaged goods, the packet does so much of your communications. But I wonder if you could have kind of speak to your... Uh, you, you, sorry. You've just, um, <laughs> I've just had a brain thought of what digital packaging would look like that appears online but isn't actually on the banana. Like, I wonder if you could do something like that. Um, but um, <laughs> online sales are up. Everyone's learning how to buy online, which is good. But uh, you know, I think bricks and mortar is going sporadically okay too. I mean, one of the things I like to remind people of is five or six of the richest ten people in the world are retailers, and retail is up and down. But if you've got a clear proposition and and everyone knows what you stand for, the retail environment's fine. But You've given me the idea of digital packaging, which I'm very excited about. So,
11: How can I get in on that? Can, is there a patent or something that we can sign up today?
12: Let's work it out. Good on you, Adam. Cheers.
11: That is advertising and brand development
2: specialist Adam Ferrier and talking to um, Charlie McKillop, who is a Far North Queensland rural reporter, but who knows? She may have a new job after that conversation with Adam. Uh, that conversation took place at the National Banana Congress. It's currently underway in cans, It's 29 past 12 and Jonathan Hopper is here with an update from the newsroom. Hi, Jonathan.
13: Good afternoon, Belinda. Western Australia has recorded no new COVID-19 cases overnight, with the state's total remaining at 1,015. The figures come as restrictions in WA are set to return to pre-lockdown levels from midnight tonight. Under the new arrangements, masks will only be mandatory at airports and Perth Stadium can operate at full capacity for Sunday's AFL game between West Coast and Adelaide Crows. The Fisheries Department has... ...announced further support for WA's rock lobster industry. The announcement comes amid ongoing closure in the Chinese market... ...affecting many Australian exporters. New measures include continued back-of-boat sales... ...access fee instalments and another 18-month season starting in July. And WA's Ministerial Expert Committee on Electoral Reform... ...has released a discussion paper midway through its consultation period. Committee head Malcolm McCusker says the paper was prepared... ...in order to promote further dialogue on the issue... The Attorney-General says the committee will help the government modernise WA's upper house voting system following the recent election at which a Daylight Savings Party MP was elected with just 98 primary votes. Thanks, Belinda.
2: Thank you very much, Jonathan, for the update. It is half past 12.
13: You're with Belinda
14: Varaschetti on the Country Hour on ABC Local Radio, WA.
2: And between now and the news at one o'clock, Danny Burkett along just before one to go through the wool market details for you. It's, well, really steady. I, I guess it's down a little bit, but it's no dramatic shifts this week. But Danny has all those details. So stay listening for that just before the news at one. And also shortly, just getting into that conversation I mentioned to you earlier about how to make your shearing shed safer. Uh, for you and your family, your close friends, but also those people that pop in on the weekends or on the school holidays, for example, and as part of that conversation, an update on those industrial manslaughter laws that are set to be um, implemented, not far away now, really, January 2022. What do those laws, those reforms mean for you You'll find out shortly. First, though, it's off to the Bureau of Meteorology. Matt Bodehoven is with you this afternoon. And, Matt, let's start in the southwest Land Division because Daryl has just texted through and he's really keen to know if there is any rain on the horizons for that sort of Morawa-Kanna area, uh, the big area up there that's really um, only had, well, Daryl's saying three or four millimetres since the cyclone, uh, Saroja, went through. Any anything hopeful there for Daryl, do you think, Matt?
15: Uh, yeah, well, let's have a look. So, um, on over the weekend, we'll have a high pressure system uh, move into the bite and a ridge uh, well south of the state. There'll also be a cloud band off the west coast. So on Saturday, some light showers uh, near the south coast and some patchy light showers over the lower west and southwest and adjacent parts of the Great Southern Central Wheat Belt. But, uh pretty much little or no rainfall expected with that activity at best, you might see a millimeter in the southwest there on Sunday. the stories uh the showers will be more confined around to the southwest district um, again, the rainfall fairly light, uh, less than one millimeter on Monday. A cold front will approach the west coast uh, during the afternoon evening. Uh, Showers, chance of thunderstorm developing southwest of the line, Durin Bay to Albany uh, during the afternoon evening. So there is potential for a heavy fall, but it's only likely to be around the coastal parts of the southwest and adjacent uh, lower west areas. So maybe uh, 15-25 millimetres near thunderstorm there on Monday afternoon or evening. On Tuesday, that cold front will move through the southwest land division. So there's a chance. for mora uh to to get uh up to three two or three millimeters um, you know hopefully there would be better situations um, but uh that's all I've got at the moment for for those guys up there unfortunately um, but for the rest of the Southwest land division on Tuesday, we're looking at um, sort of up to four or five millimeters in western parts of the great southern. Uh, southwest Central Wheat Belt, uh, South Coastal District, around the lower west and southwest could see up to 10 or 12 millimetres. Coastal parts of the Central West uh, around uh, 8 millimetres in some parts. But as that cold front pushes further uh, north and east of the Southwest land Division, though rainfall figures really drop off in the far north and eastern parts. you be rainfall figures be less than one millimetre. Uh, So that's what we're looking at over the next four days. So chance there for Mora um, there around um, two or three millimetres on Tuesday.
2: Yeah, I'm sure Daryl's looking for a little bit more in that area, that Cana area, which is about 160 kilometres south-east of Geraldton. Yeah, Daryl, you'll be waiting a little bit longer for that. I know it has been particularly dry in that patch, and that's uh, challenging when... There's been a lot of rain in many other parts of the South West Land Division. Fingers crossed for you, Daryl. Now, Matt, taking a look at northern and eastern parts, what can you see?
15: Yeah, not too much going on. Um, we've got the, sort of a nice, fresh, strong uh, easterly flow over the north of the state, so mostly sunny conditions uh, through those parts, um, temperatures in the low 30s, uh, strong winds near the Pilbara and Kimberley coasts over the weekend. Uh, a couple of light showers uh, through the Eucla there on over the weekend and maybe even getting into the far south goldfields, but yeah, not a lot of rainfall in that. Um, And then by Tuesday, maybe we'll get some coastal showers with that front uh, through the western parts of the Gascoyne um, as that moves through.
2: And warnings this afternoon?
15: Yeah, we've just had some strong winds off the East Pilbara coast and the West Kimberley coast this morning, uh, but they've eased off now and they should start up again um, overnight and uh, Saturday morning.
2: All right, great. Thank you for the wrap, Matt. Appreciate that. This is The Country Hour on ABC Radio right across Western Australia, 25 to 1. Checking the rainfall figures in the last 24 hours to 9 o'clock this morning, and the only region in this state that's received any rain at all was the southern coastal area. So Chain Beach 5, many peaks had 4. And, well, there's nothing else worth reading out, nothing significant. Uh, Just before the news at one, catching up with Danny Burkett. He is busy going through the wool market results for you for this week. And here we'll share that with you just before one o'clock. First, though, Australia's shearers want outdated and dangerous shearing equipment banned after a number of cases of injuries to shearers and shed hands In a Sydney court on Friday, a shearing contractor was fined $16,500 after roustabout Casey Barnes was scalped when her hair became entangled in an overhead shaft. That accident happened back in 2017. But shearing contractors say it is up to farmers to ensure their workplace is safe. And it's the safety regulator's job to ensure farmers do that. Jason Letchford is Secretary of the Shearing Contractors Association of Australia and says it's just not good enough to expect industry to regulate itself.
16: So what happens in any workplace, not limited to shearing sheds or agriculture, is is the regulators in each state, generally they, they have an approach where they don't like to what they call to industry solutions to safety. They're of the the philosophy that industry can can work out better solutions than they can because they're they're not industry specific. They're they're very general. But we're effectively saying this, you know, this is now at the point where you can either call it a failed experiment or something that is something that's not working at the end of the day because we've got workplaces that are still, even though, you know, this, this accident was well publicized, it happened three years ago, and we're still across every state in the country i uh, got situations where we've got these old-fashioned shearing sheds. Now, it, it's a hard to argue that it's, it's about economics. For most people, the drought's ended. That's the old traditional excuse for not spending money on shearing sheds. Uh, but we've now got a situation where there's plenty of money in, in sheep and wool production. Uh, but that, that's not really the point. You know, it, The point is it's about people's safety and people's lives. And if you're going to be in business, you need to have a business model where you do it right.
1: This was a case where this rouse about hair was caught in an overhead shaft so, so you want overhead shafts to be banned but uh, you're also going beyond that and you want also older model electric shearing plants that don't have electronic safety switches to also be outlawed?
16: Absolutely that, that's right Angus we're basically looking at you know what I'm calling a once in a generation change if we're at the point where we want to eliminate this uh, entanglement issue with with exposed shafts I mean every, every farmer's very familiar with augers and the dangers they present. And, and at the same thing in a shearing shed, in the same way that we want to prevent those type of accidents, again, we're saying we've got this perfect opportunity to also, at the same time as eliminating these exposed shafts, is eliminating this, this other issue called, you know, we, we call lockup.
1: That issue of lockup, Jason, explain what that actually means and how it can still occur with older model shearing plants that don't have the modern electronic safety switch.
16: Yeah, that's right. Um, there's plenty, plenty of shearing sheds went away from shaft gear, you know, even up to 50 years ago and, and bought electric-powered stands. We, You know, we usually refer to them as sun, the old sunbeam stands. But what the trouble with those that equipment is, is it does have a thing called a worm drive, but it's very ineffective if the handpiece actually hits something, a stick or an ear tag or something like that. And what happens to it is the handpiece flies out of the shearer's hand and, and then starts cutting again and then lands somewhere. And, and a lot of the time... It lands on the floor and away from the shearer, but unfortunately too often it lands on the shearer, causing you know cuts to wherever it lands, to faces, arms, legs, all the rest of it. And we have had the situation, and this is the reason we're, we're so adamant that we want this change, is that in 2011 there was a shearer that died because of lock-up. The, the handpiece hit him in one of his main arteries, and, and unfortunately the young shearer didn't make it to hospital, and he died. And and that went below the radar, that story. It didn't make the newspapers back in the time, but. Uh, the regulator in South Australia never prosecuted the employer or the farmer, so we didn't really see any change. And, and what we're looking for now, Angus, is, is to use this court case with Casey Barnes. And while industry is looking at safety, we want the, the standard raised from not just getting rid of uh, shaft gear, but we need to get all of our equipment in all shearing sheds across the country to have this minimum standard where these hand pieces can't injure and kill people uh, as a result of this locker.
1: That terrible fatality that you mentioned there, that, that was a decade ago now. So how disappointing is it that in terms of shearing shed regulation that nothing really seems to have changed since then?
16: You're hitting the nail on the head, Angus, and, and this is why we want this incident with Casey Barnes to be a change, not just about sharp gear, but to, to move the industry to a new standard. Uh, you know, and a couple of the other byproducts of... Um, of owning this new equipment or running this new equipment is is not only just fully guarded, but it has far less noise and vibration, which, which are two sort of serious, you know, but long-term effects on, on the workers. And, and people's workers' comp, if, if you want to just look at it from a money perspective, uh, pays for all these things. So it really makes perfect economic sense to actually implement all this gear. And, and you know, just to sort of wrap it up, this, this is where the regulator has... Let us go on for too long using sort of the voluntary system and, and self, you know, risk assessment and, you know, working it out for ourselves. And we just actually need to move it to the next level and get farmers on board, get the farmer federations across the country on board, where we want this stuff in every shearing shed and, and we don't just leave it up to individuals.
2: Jason Litchford, he's Secretary of the Shearing Contractors Association of Australia, speaking to Angus Verley. It is 19 to 1 here on the Country Hour and with this sort of conversation, it is so great to get your perspective on the farm, what happens, real life experience because it does shed so much more light on a, a situation, a conversation like this. The text 0448 four eight nine604. Steve says, bring it on and include mandatory drug and alcohol testing. This from John in Darkin. We have mobile mechanics who visit the farm and they supply all their own tools. I suggest that all shearers bring their own overhead gear and handpieces. Some of our shearers do bring all their own gear. Andrew says, there are two sides to the story. Farmers are sick of shearers treating our property with no respect, let alone being worried about everything getting stolen. They have to pick up their game too, says Andrew. 0448 922 604. So what does all this mean for Western Australian farms? Well, a short time ago, Richard Hudson caught up with Marie Gooch, who is Executive Officer of Safe Farms WA.
6: Now, Marie, you and your family have been involved in the sheep and the shearing industry for a, a little while, haven't you? The, the, that older style overhead shaft being referred to by the Shearing Association, are they actually outlawed in Western Australia?
5: It's a really interesting question, Richard, because I've been involved in the ag industry all my life, quite a few decades, and actually been a farmer myself, hands on, and in the livestock and sheep industry for 25 plus years. And uh, no, to answer your question, it's my understanding that they're not outlawed. However, when I spoke to WorkSafe when this um, tragedy first happened, they strongly uh, recommend that the workplace is safe. What that means is um, there's nothing really written down, to my knowledge, that um, if there's overhead gear, that it has to be gone sort of thing, Um, what they suggest is that it has to be safe and above a certain height. Now, if someone is working in the shed, either shearing or wool handling or pressing, then if they're quite tall, then it's highly likely that, you know, it's probably not safe and they may be able to reach up and touch that overhead gear, which in itself is then not safe. It's a bit like how but, long's a piece of string. But
6: whose call is it that the equipment is safe?
5: Well, it's probably the regulator, but unfortunately, it would be after an event.
6: So only after the fact.
5: From my interpretation of what Worksafe have said to me, then yes. What is happening more and more is uh, that farmers are investing in the gear that is um, sort of all encompassing and it's all closed. And sometimes contractors themselves will take their own gear to a shed or from shed to shed to make sure that the workplace is safe for their contracted workers.
6: I don't know the exact uh, details of that case with Casey Barnes back in 2017. It it did sound awful, but it just got me thinking of all the people who enter a shearing shed. Not all are shearers. Not all are actually employed. Some are non-workers. Some might be visitors. You might have brothers or sisters of the farmer. Kids And not all have their hair tied up and appropriately dressed, etc. They might not all be aware of what they can and can't touch. If there's an accident with one of those people, who's responsible? Is, Is it the farmer or the shearing contractor or the mum or the dad? What's the story?
5: The legislation, bear in mind Western Australia is still under OSH legislation from 1984. It's very similar to the new work health and safety legislation that will come in later in the year employers must provide a safe place of work so that in the first instance would be the farmer contractors because they are contracting must deem the shed and the the area a safe place to work so it's a second layer it gets quite complicated and when insurance comes into the mix as well i'm not uh, at liberty to speak about insurance but when insurance comes into the mix it gets quite blurry The shearing industry has uh, generally quite high workers' compensation percentages across their uh, wages, and then also the livestock industry who are involved in the shearing and sheep wool handling game, similar sort of thing. So it's quite a tricky one where there's almost double up of insurance. But who deems it safe? The employer, so the farmer can go in and make sure that there's no holes in the floor, that the overhead gear is safe, that the the gates and the dragging area are all safe. A contractor would come in and very much encourage contractors, and I don't think it happens all the time, but encourage contractors to check sheds before their teams go in. And then there would be a supervisor on the day. So there's all these sort of layers. Ultimately, it's up to the employee to be safe and ensure that their fellow workers are safe. So that also goes for visitors, children, etc. everyone. So everybody's got to be looking out for each other. And there are penalties that apply to workers if they don't make sure that it's safe.
6: Well, you've now touched on the next important point because I suppose this is the scary part as well because some new industrial manslaughter laws went through Parliament near the end of last year. They have some stiffer penalties attached to them. What's the update on those laws?
5: so they're included the industrial manslaughter are two sections or one section in part a and part b of the new work health and safety legislation which will bring western australia into line with the rest of um, national work health and safety legislation at the moment from what we're told by Worksafe and the ag industry safety group which safe farms i sit on the board of that we're told that it will be coming in later in the year so not sure exactly when However, what we can do to be on the front foot is to get our house in order, get our safety systems in place, do our inductions, provide our training, all those sorts of things.
6: Those stiffer penalties we're referring to, if someone, for instance, tragically uh, dies on your property or in your care, if you're a business owner of some sort, what are the, they're really stiff, aren't they, as far as fines or even jail terms go?
5: Uh, yes, so the penalties came into place in October of 2018, effective immediately. So they're actually in place now. They started around the $250,000 for a body corporate, so I think of you know a company or a trust operating to run a farm, and uh, they start around $250,000. They go up to sort of two, three, five million. Not wanting to scare anyone, but those penalties have been in place for a little while, and luckily we haven't had any tragedies. However, there's also jail terms as well. So not only in a tragic situation where someone is killed, will that family not have that loved one, there may well be one person from, or more, from the um, employer, I'll just use that broadly, who go to jail too. And then workers, their fines start at $50,000, going upwards as well. So this is really serious, that people need to get their house in order and be aware of the risks and the repercussions if they don't.
6: Marie, can I just put one scenario to you? Um, Imagine if I'm a wool classer and I'm working all day and my child knocks off school at, say, 3 p.m. There's no childcare in the town closest to where I'm working on the farm, so I've just asked for my child to be dropped off at the farm that I'm working at. If my child then has an accident inside the shearing shed or maybe somewhere on the farm on a fence or something, and it's a serious one, who's liable? Is it the farmer? Is it me as the dad or the mum? Is it the shearing contractor? Who's up for some of these stiff penalties?
5: I think it's important to recognise that permission should be given before any child, one goes on a school bus and then gets off the school bus at a farm, I don't actually think I can answer that one, Richard. I think it's more a work safe as the regulator, how that would be. If the contractor has completed the, let's say, the induction with the farmer who says that all visitors and children must report to X place and the contractor's not there to do that, then you know it cascades down to whoever's the supervisor in the shed. If the farmer doesn't know that the child is there, then that's really, really difficult. And it's a bit like pin the tail on the donkey as to who is responsible and liable. Um, And then the parent as well, whose responsibility is it to have the child there? I did ask the Shearing Contractors Association of WA about children in sheds uh, some time ago. And the question that came back to me was, would you have a child on a construction site? So would you have a child in a place of work like a shearing shed? And I know that's challenging because kids come and go, kids live on farms and, you know, it is a place of work and it is a place of where people live as well. However, if there's a visiting child that comes uh, to the workplace and the farmer doesn't know about it, then that's really challenging. So I uh, think you'd probably have to ask WorkSafe on that one.
2: Marie Gooch. She's from Safe Farms, WA. is the executive officer. So really, the key message to you is to get up to speed with these safety issues and the requirements. This is The Country Hour on ABC right across Western Australia, eight minutes to one. Very shortly, Danny Burkett along going through the wool market details for you just before the news at one. But it seems you are keen to have your say on these new uh, laws. Regulations that are set to come in in January 2020, and also the safety issues in the shearing shed. The text is zero double four eight nine double two six zero four. Ralph says it's always amusing hearing shearing contractors harp on about safety. I've never seen a shed hand in steel cap boots or long pants, mostly thongs and singlets at the most. Can't wait to see a shearer with a hard hat on. Uh, this from Bruce. I'm a wool presser and Rousey, touching wires in sheds. It's a time when you never know if you may die. Wires that are 80 years old, floorboards that are not there. Death in a shed is always close. And this from Tom. Shearers are contractors and farmers are paying contract rates. So how about shearers taking responsibility for their own tools and this may encourage them to take care of their gear. The text zero double four eight nine double two six zero four. On the Country Hour 7 to 1, Peter Boyle is a farmer in York and he has five shearing sheds that he runs. So, Peter, you've got a bit of experience with this. What are your thoughts on this conversation?
14: Well, I thought that uh, the shearing contractors are a bit holier than they are to start off with because... It's all all comes back to us. However, the shearers turn up. Some of them are not sober enough in the morning to drive, little and uh, drive a handpiece, or they've had drugs uh, on their body. and so who is responsible uh, to see whether they're safe to start work? And second, and if we do question it, the team walks out, but the thing that concerns me as well is the fact that they shear barefooted. So most of them do, or they just wear those little moccasins that don't offer any protection at all. Well,
2: what are your thoughts then, Peter, on these uh, industrial uh, manslaughter reform laws that have gone through Parliament? Uh, Obviously, the legislation needs to be written up, so that's quite a long process, but set to be implemented by January 2022, so next year.
14: Yeah, well, I think it's a, a move by the Shearers' Association to dump, all the responsibility onto us and accept none themselves. Uh, and once that sort of becomes the norm, then that's the way it'll be. But we've got to stand up and say, no, you've got to be responsible too. You're 50-50 percent, 50 percent with us and 50 percent yourself. So you've got to provide uh, staff that are fit for work and suitably attired, with uh, safety on their side in mind as well. Sure, that girl got caught with a long hair, but other workplaces they have to have long hair in a net. So why is it always the farmer's fault?
2: Peter, great to get your thoughts. I really appreciate you calling through this afternoon. Peter Boyle, he's a farmer in York. A few more texts to get through: zero double four eight nine double two six zero four. This from Murray in South Yellabinie. Sell the sheep and go fishing. Uh, Jess has text through and she says, Speaking from a farmer's point of view and also an ex-shearing contractor, Yes, farmers should replace unsafe machines in sheds, but the contractor has taken on the job. If it is unsafe for your workers, don't accept the job. Shearing contractors are no better than the sheep in the shed following each other. Make the changes, reform the industry, says Jess. And this too, please don't put all shearers in the same basket. We are not all on drugs. On the country, Hour on ABC, across Western Australia, it is time to get the results of the sheep market now. And Danny Burkett is here to go through those details for you. Uh, just going through the wool market indicators firstly, now, it was down a little bit this week. The Eastern market indicator down 13 cents to close at 1,000. 306 cents a kilo clean, and the Western market indicated down 5 cents, closing at 1,350 cents a kilo. Danny Burkett, what do you make of the market this week?
17: Considering we had 49,771 bars in the three centres across the country, we ended up fairly firm for the week, which was, I thought, an outstanding result given the quantity. Actually, go as far as to say that given that large quantity, we may have well attracted some competition. Normally, in the past, when we see these larger offerings, it can put um, some of the exporters' mind at ease, thinking there's a lot of wool around. But um, I've just seen the last two large sales we've had in the last four months have actually proven to be some of our better markets. So that's what happened this week to walk you through Fremantle. 18 micron closed, 10 clean cheaper at $18.70. 19s are up 10, closing at $15.85. 20 microns closing, $13.35, and that was up five. 21's minus five at $12.75 on the close, and 22's minus 10 at $12.10. If you take that back to the farm gate, with Merino Fleece Walk Sound, 68% yield at 185 kilo bale weight, 18 microns will return you $2,330 a bale, 19 microns, $1,990. Twenty microns, sixteen eighty, or one thousand six hundred eighty dollars a bale. Twenty ones, it's just over sixteen hundred. And twenty twos, at fifteen hundred and twenty dollars a bale. So, still very reasonable returns for nano fleece wool. pieces and bellies were minus twenty on the first day in Fremantle, minus twenty to thirty across the board. Didn't matter the VM, the length, or the micron, and they stayed firm on the second day. Otters. Great day on the first day, up 20, off on the second day. So remain remained par for the week. So overall in Fremantle, a solid result. We did see trade continue as a three-day sale in Melbourne on Thursday. That market was quoted by AWEX. But on my reckoning, i would suggest that may have firmed uh, on the last day to close Deere. But AWEX have quoted it firm, so a very good result. And the buyers this week, Denny? We had TechWool, no surprises again, 3,193 bars. If we look at Merino Fleasel across the three centres at 12.4% of the offering. TNU, who have been very astute buyers in the past, came in just shy of 3,000 bars at 11.5%, Fox and William Lampriere third and fourth, taking just over 2,200 and just shy of 2,200 each. Interest in Merino skirtings dominated by TechWool. Crossbreds dominated by Tech Wool, and if we look at oddments, they were the fourth largest purchases for the Odmets. So again, fantastic spread of buys, but Tech Wool trading across the country dominated the market scene as they have done in the past and have certainly driven and held our market where it is. And for next week? Next week, we have just shy of 46,000 bales. We're going to sell in Sydney Melbourne, and Fremantle. But if we just look a little bit past that, this week was a larger offering, but we start to send out in quantity over the next weeks. So anybody looking to purchase wool will have to come in on these reasonable size offerings to grab quantity because it is running out fast.
2: Danny, thank you for that. A couple of texts before the news. Uh, This from Ron, I've been calling for a wool grower's code of practice for years. I lost my farm and pole dorset stud in a shearing shed accident by a cocky that just didn't give a stuff. He's still farming and I was thrown on the Mallee Root heap. I was shearing to pay off my farm. And Alan says, one of the best things we did was replace our overhead gear. The shed is quieter, the shearing plant is easier to maintain and it's also safer. Time for the news. One o'clock.